pal, Alec Guinness, once again, for our friends on the podcast that you are about to listen to. Last week, we watched our film, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Wasn't it good? I thought it was quite good. But this week, we have a slightly different film. Uh, certainly as dark, uh, perhaps uh, uh, less of a human element to it. Well, there's a human element, I suppose, and the humans that are in it. But this is about a bunch of people in Cambodia who end up dead. So, this week, I present to you The Killing Fields from 1984. Let's go to Brendan and Jason now. Thank you, Mr. Guinness. A uh, very uh, sports announcer-like intro there. He's been working on his voice. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, he, he doesn't feel that he's uh, achieved the thing with his voice that he should. And this is impressive, considering he's been dead for, well, almost 50, well, almost 20 years at this point. A long time. A long time. Well, you sound a lot like him. I don't know where that came from. Uh, I, don't he, I don't think he'd left yet. Okay, you are Jason, right? You're not... Uh, I am Jason. You're not Daniel. We've we've dealt with him. <laughs> I'm just, I'm he's just, been sent back to Wales. I'm making sure because fool me once shame on me etc can't can't get fooled again so jason this is a podcast we do here yes it's called for screen and country and we talk about the top 100 british films of all time on the bfi list really it's a top 100 uh, British films of the 20th century. Of the 20th basically. century, yes. Yeah. So this list was compiled in 1999. 1999. So, so there is 20 years of British film that uh, theoretically exists, but as far as we're concerned, doesn't. I don't know what you're talking about. No. Sean of the what? Uh, uh, basically, Britain adopted the Euro and then stopped making films. They never adopted the Euro. That's not true at all. <laughs> they went hand in hand. Well, it's just as true as your claim about Britain. Brit- I suppose, yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. They adopted the Euro and stopped making movies. So we are going to talk about, uh, today we're going to talk about number 100 mm-hmm. on the BFI, right at the bottom of the list, on the BFI Top 100 British Films of All Time, The Killing Fields. However, before we get to that, uh, we do have to talk a little bit about the bridge on the River Kwai because we have some comments and questions. Our first comment, Jason. Our first comment, Jason. That's what it's called. Comment, Jasons. That's cool. Comes from Ryan Terry. Ryan Terry. And he says about the bridge on the River Kwai, it's fantastic. It is. The cast is great. Mm Mm-hmm. Alec Guinness deserved his Oscar, and Colonel Bogey's march is constantly getting stuck in my head, particularly when I'm hiking or walking around the neighborhood. I also want to mention, too, as much as I love the Colonel Bogey march, I often get that in my head mixed up with... Did you ever see The Great Escape? Uh, yeah, the, 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 doot, doot. Do, 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 oh do, yeah, that do, is similar. Do, 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 do. But yeah, but I mean, Bogey March is great, and yes, I agree. It is a fantastic song. It's a fantastic man. Uh, our next comment, Danny Mon, Mon, Danny Mon, Danny says, Man says the William Holden bits are kind of drawn out, but Guinness is so good, and I agree. When I first watched this movie years ago on VHS, that was the thing that I took away from it was like, why do we have so much time with William Holden? I want to see what's going on in the camp. I was say yeah, though I like the uh, the William Holden bits. They're definitely almost it's definitely almost like another movie. Yeah, but I mean it works. If, I think if you spent the whole time at the prison camp, it would get a little bit tiring eventually. Yeah, I might have cut them down a bit, but also I'm not David Lean, so uh, I'll let his work. What? Stand. Yeah, I know. Are, are you sure? Because fool me once. Yeah, no. Unless <laughs> unless DDL's hanging around here somewhere, putting on a fake British accent. You have a, a moniker for him now? What was my moniker for him? History's Greatest Monster. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> HDM DDO. <laughs> Doug Becker. 
says one of the finest war films out there. Couldn't agree more. Yep. Uh, Tara, Tom Chapman, not Terry Chapman. Tom Chapman said Graham loved Cha- it. Is it Graham Chapman? I wish. <laughs> that would be that would be big news that he was still alive. Loved it. It was my first film outside of Star Wars to see Alec Guinness in, in a long time, in it, and he's fantastic. The ending is also one of the best final 15 minutes I've ever seen before. That bridge totally holds up. I agree, Tom. That uh, he, didn't, he didn't say the bridge held up, but I assume he feels that in his heart. God, I love that bridge. That bridge blowing up is one of the best things in cinema, and we know it is because we see it every single fucking year on the Oscars when they show the clip package. Well, Melody Mar- Marie Junk... John Kay, I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm trying. You're doing your best. Uh, said, it's so good that America and Britain bo- are both claiming it, which yeah. is true because it is also on the AFI Top 100. Yes, absolutely. And but, I believe it's in the 30s somewhere. But what's the American connection? I mean, it was probably financed and then William, William Holden. Holden. I, mean, I mean, I'm not like William Holden. Fine, I don't know. It, it was released by an American production company. Yeah. And, and it was it. primarily released in America. Yeah. So... All right, you had trouble with that name. Let me try this one. Okay. Mitchka Saberi. I love David Lean, but for some reason, this one never stuck for me. That's very strange of all the David Lean movies to not stick. Yeah. For me, it's Kind Hearts and Coronets. I'm just kidding. I've never seen that. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. That's on the list. You going to do the next one? Oh, I thought you were going to say something else. No, I got... You know, hey, I, I can't relate because I fucking <laughs> love this movie, but I, I respect her opinion. I wonder. I wonder what she thinks about, like, maybe, uh, like, Blimp? Zhivago oh. or... What did you say? Colonel Blimp? <laughs> That's not a David Lee movie. Oh, I thought it was. Nope. <laughs> uh, I wonder what she thinks of, like, Zhivago or, uh, you know, any of his other ones. A Get at us. Passage to India. Get at us. That's right. Mitchka, let, let us know if there's any other David Lee movies you're like, eh! Or is this like the bottom of the barrel for you? Mm-hmm. Um, Caitlin Coyle. I adore this movie. First watched it when I was like 12 and came back to it recently after reading Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan, which is fiction tangentially about the Death Railway. Nice. Do you know anything about this? About the Death Railway? About the, that or the book? I don't know anything about the book. I know a little bit about the, the Death Railway and the, the Death Marches and everything because the Japanese were not nice in World War Two. We can just leave it at that. Okay. I just wanted you to know that I know a little bit. I'm not going to tell you anything about it, but uh, things were bad, guys. Don't uh, don't get involved with World War II Japanese uh, military. I would say. So was the Death Railway? Um, but it was, was called that De- kind of briefly referenced when they had the train scene in the in the movie, or was that well, that was what that railway different? was they were building. It was oh, okay. a death railway in the sense that they basically would work people to death because uh, it was like w- w- they had no respect for them, especially especially for the British troops that had surrendered because in Japanese culture, surrender is. Once you've surrendered, you may as well just kill yourself. Yeah, well, that's, so, we see a lot yeah, of that. We with, see a lot of that in the movie with uh, Sesu Hayakawa. What's his name in the movie? Uh, with uh, Colonel uh, Saito. Saito, yeah. yeah. Isn't that uh, great? I do is the actor's name, yeah, not the I'm character's name. What the hell? But uh, yeah, that. Uh, so yeah, they they just would work people to death. Actually, similar, kind of similar into the manner of how back in the day the British would work West Indian slaves to death because. They didn't. They didn't think of them as people. So why waste resources feeding them and clothing them and giving them medical care? Just fucking work them to death, right? I mean, are you asking for agreement? I'm asking for your <laughs> approval. <laughs> uh, moving on. <laughs> what did Kyle Keppen say? Kyle Keppen said or this Copen. one has grown on me. It had all the appearance of a bloated mid-century epic, but it's very engaging. Some really smart camera work. It does a really nice job exploring man versus nature. 
Actually, that's what I was fearing when we first rolled the dice and got this, that it yeah. was going to be one of those movies where, like, I know, you, I know you were really excited about it, but I was still, at the back of my head, I was like, oh, this still feels like a very, like, bloated movie. And, I mean, I, lo- I liked Dr. Zhivago quite mm-hmm. a bit, but I still was like, I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. ready for another Dr. Zhivago. And it's not Dr. Zhivago no. in the slightest. It's, it's, it's closer to Lawrence of Arabia than it is Which to Cleopatra. Which I also have not seen. Oh, dude, you gotta watch Cleopatra. Rex Harrison is fucking Caesar? Come on. Isn't that like one of the big flops of all time? Oh, terrible flop. It was the most expensive movie when it was made. It cost $44 million in 1960. Wow. And it starred uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor and fucking Rex Harrison and Richard Burton. Coming next week, a double feature of Cleopatra (laughs) and Ishtar. (laughs) If, If you folks out there have ever watched Family Guy and wonder where Stewie's voice comes from, it's basically Rex Harrison. Also, Dr. Doolittle. Yes. Sharon Horwat says, River Kwai is one of my dad's favorite movies. It's a, it is definitely a, a favorite movie of a lot of dads. It's a, it's a dad movie. It's definitely a dad movie. There's no question. This is next um, one is interesting. Jeffrey Simmons says, I won't argue with Bruce Willis. He says, best movie ending, and I kind of agree. I guess there's an interview with Bruce Willis where he said, I think the best ending of any movie is The Bridge on the River Kwai. And then he said, anyway, so my new movie, uh, my new movie <laughs> Replicas, or whatever the fuck that was called. I don't know if I'd trust Bruce Willis on anything, but we got to agree with him on this one. One of the best endings of all time, in my humble opinion. Mm. And I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna step forward and, and say that Brendan agrees without him having to say anything. So moving on to the next comment. Uh, all right then. <laughs> uh, Amber Nom de Famille says that's a fun nom de plume. I like plums. <laughs> no, it's Nom de Famille, not Nom de Plume. Uh, but it's a Nom de Plume. Her yeah, Nom de Famille not... is. There's no way her name is. Family name. In can French. you not? Can you not read that? I, I can mean, read it, on. but what it's Nom de Famille. Jason doesn't know how to spell. <laughs> so she says, "This is our last comment here." A husband showed it to me by guilting me. I loved it. It's a pretty great movie, and I do highly recommend it. I imagine it can be more difficult for for women sometimes to watch this movie just because there's no prominent female characters in it. Literally, the the I think the female character that has the most lines is that nurse that William Holden's trying to fuck in the middle of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, truly a revolutionary role for, yeah. for, for actors. Women really made it in 1960. 57. 57. Wow. Oh, shit, wow. What are you trying to do there? It's just, it's so colorful. But then <laughs> yeah. again, so is uh, some other movies we'll watch that are older than this. Well, Jason, we've covered Bridge on the River Kwai. Let's talk about the AFI list because we like to compare the number on the AFI list, mm-hmm. the American Film Institute, to the number we just covered last week on the BFI. So yes, Bridge sir. on the River Kwai was number 11. And the AFI list is Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. At number 11. At number 11. Make this real quick. I've never seen it. No idea. Have never seen it. No idea. Can say Great Dictator, awesome Chaplin movie. Only Chaplin movie I've seen. So now, please enjoy as we plow through the killing fields. Yes, that's right. The Killing Fields, directed by Roland Jaffe, starring Sam Waterston, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Hang S. Noor, yes. a completely new, like, non-actor, uh, uh, John Malkovich. Of course, we got to have some Malkovich in there. Spalding Gray. Yeah, strangely, but I mean, he did a few acting gigs over the years, so why not? Uh, Craig T. Nelson. Uh, coach. 
Or as the younger people might know, Mr. Incredible. <laughs> no, he's coach. He's coach, and you not the coach from Cheers. He's the coach from Coach. He's the villain in Action Jackson, and you know it. And then the other guy on Coach was the dude that played uh, the, the, the mentally challenged guy in uh, The Stand. M-O-O-N. That spells moon. Right. Yeah. He's not in this movie. <laughs> so that is what we're looking at uh, this this week. The Killing Fields. So Jason. Sure. That's an odd response. <laughs> but I like it. Why don't you tell us a little bit. Why don't you tell us all you know about The Killing Fields. Yes, I will. Even though that's from a different movie. The Killing Fields. The Killing okay. Fields is a musical starring Sam Watterson. No, that's, it's not. That's a, that's, nope. It, it might be it, it might actually work as a musical um, it's a dark musical a very dark musical yes Sweeney Todd look out we left these people in these fields and buried them under the rice why are you Sebastian the Crab? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Under the sea. <laughs> under the grass. <laughs> under the sea. Everything's deadened. <laughs> well, under, under the grass. So, uh, so this movie is a movie about Cambodia. Hmm. Does anybody know about Cambodia? Does anybody that, ever watch any Vietnam movies and talk a, about Cambodia? Is that a state or a province? That is a state in the international sense. <laughs> right under Missouri. So if you go and look at the peninsula All where right. Vietnam is... We're not doing this. <laughs> okay, no, no go ahead. If you go look at the peninsula where Vietnam is, you'll notice that uh, uh, around it are two other countries. Mm -hmm. There's Cambodia to the south and there's Laos to the... Uh, I believe that would be the east. I guess the right... Uh, so, so yeah, so the Vietnam War happened, but that peninsula was the site of a lot of conflict. Now, the U.S. was fighting in Vietnam, but even though they weren't supposed to be, because the, the Viet Cong and the NVA were taking advantage of the fact that Laos and Cambodia were right there, they were also fighting there and dropping hot, bombs all over the place. Hot take. Yeah. <laughs> the Vietnam War wasn't right, that's my hot take. Not right. Not right. Rated R. So... This movie starts in, I believe, in 1973. So this is at the very tail end of America's involvement in the Vietnam War and actually very close to the end of the Vietnam War, which ends in 1975. So mm -hmm. we got Sam Watterson. We got Hang Noor. Uh, Sam Watterson plays a journalist named Sidney Shanberg. A real person. A real person. This is actually based on his book, I believe. Yeah. Uh, his and, I believe, uh, I believe the uh, Death Pran also wrote a book. Uh, yep. But, uh, yeah, so... Watterson plays uh, Cindy Shanberger, who works for the New York Times. And and where uh, might people know Sam Watterson from, Jason? They might know him from Law and & Order. And that's it. That's it. That's the only <laughs> thing I could possibly name you he was in. Yep. Uh, but he's great. He's great on that. So he plays Sidney Shanberg. As I said, he's a New York Times journalist. He has a colleague slash translator in Cambodia named Dith Pran, who is a journalist himself, but is also acting as a translator for Cindy Shanberg. Played by Hang Noor. Played by Hang Noor. Dr. Hang Noor. Dr. Hang Noor, an obstetrician from Cambodia who lived through this era, mm. only to then come over to America and play uh, not himself in a movie. You'd think they would have put him in the movie as himself, but he's playing Dith Pran. Well, they couldn't get Dith Pran. He was busy. I mean, I think that, well... Uh, well, I have. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. We got. Stuff. We'll get there. We got stuff. You think they wanted to? They were trying. They could have done the Clint Eastwood thing of getting the real people involved, oh. but we saw how that turned out. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Fifteen seventeen. Fifteen seventeen to Paris. Not recommended. So this movie takes place around the time that the Khmer Rouge, which was a the communist guerrillas that were fighting against the Cambodian government. Gorillas. Gorillas with a U, Brendan. Oh, okay. 
Um, I was like, I definitely missed something. And we'll talk about them uh, a little bit later in yes. more depth. But mm-hmm. so, Shanberg of the New York Times, he shows up in Cambodia looking to meet Pran at the airport, but Pran had already left because he had something to deal with. So he takes a cab into the hotel and meets up with his photographer, Al Rockoff, played by the wonderful John Malkovich. In a very early role. Very early role, very young, a lot of hair. Yeah, a lot of hair, a lot of hair but not on the top. Of not the on side. the top, but lots around the side. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just support supporting performance of hair, but not a yeah, lead actor. Well, that's he wasn't there yet, <laughs> right? Uh, so he meets up and talks to to Al Rockoff, and while he's there, Pran shows up, and he's like, "Hey, sorry, I had to bail, but there's been an incident. Uh, an American B fifty two bombed uh, this town uh, called Neek Lung, mm-hmm. and." Another another actual thing that happened. Actual thing that happened. An accidental and bombing. Of course, their immediate thought is, well, why? Technically, the U.S. isn't at war with Cambodia. Why are they bombing a town in Cambodia? I mean, it's one thing to go and, like, drop napalm on the forest because you want to root an NVA, but they actually bombed a full-on town here. So yeah. Well, they, yeah. So they head out of town and go to this place. And when they get there, they're pretty quickly uh, uh, arrested when they try to document the execution of two members of the Khmer Rouge. Which, I will say, at first... Okay, so they, they make their way into Niklung, which does take some effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they have to get like a boat and like pay off some police and all mm-hmm. that stuff. When they get there, um, at first I thought the K- Khmer Rouge or the K- Khmer Rouge? Yeah. Is Khmer? Uh, Khmer. I've heard it say Khmer. I say Khmer. I mean, I'm sure there's a proper pronunciation but you can say i, I think they say both in the movie yeah yeah um so the Khmer rouge i thought they were the ones doing the executing no and this then was i was like government forces i was like I believe oh so we're starting out like i gotta give it to them is that they're not portraying the government before that in a positive light either no. but this is also government at war this is a government that's dealing with an insurgency and unfortunately when governments deal with insurgencies they tend to do shit like that true but i mean we do the first time we see this government mm. it's an execution yeah because we're <laughs> expecting to see the the Khmer rouge which if you have any interest in cambodia you would know about them and their regime that was from 1975 to 1979 yeah um so yeah we expect that but no it's government troops executing uh Khmer Rouge. So they're really so they're arrested by the uh, the government there, um, but they're released as the U.S. Army shows up, and Shanberg is pissed because he was ready to break the story of what was going on about here about the U.S. bombing, about the, the U.S. City. bombing it. But yeah. then they show up with the whole like actual press corps and basically are able to kind of steamroll over because they're there too. Sanitize the story. To Sanitize the story. Make the government look good. That's right. Yeah. Uh, get their own spin on it. Yeah. And that pisses Shanberg off. Um, Obviously, so, I'm so glad this happened. So, and, and they meet Coach there. Uh, uh, yeah, Coach Craig, Craig doesn't Tiels. have a name in the movie. No, he played. He's credited as military attaché. Military attaché. I believe he's a major. I believe he's referred to as a major. At yeah, one point. Uh, he's a high up guy. But he basically is just like, ah, fuck off, guys. Eh. Yeah. No comment. Basically, yeah. no comment. I'm a journalist. Damn it. It's basically yeah. that. So two years go by, and we we come into Phnom Penh which is the capital of Cambodia. I and didn't even realize two years went yeah, by. I, I didn't realize, but in, it, in the summaries I was reading, like yeah. it points that out. So two years go by, and then the Khmer Rouge appear to be peacefully marching into Phnom Penh, which is a little strange. Uh, yeah. This is a guerrilla army. This isn't like a, with a U, Brandon. Oh, sorry. This is a guerrilla army. As much as a real guerrilla army with an O would be awesome. Man. We should just watch Dawn of the Planet of the yeah, Apes next week. Next week, we'll watch Dawn of the Planet of the Apes in Congo. No die roll. <laughs> Congo. <laughs> Even the extremes yep. of both quality <laughs> and spectrums. So so the, the Khmer Rouge are marching in, and the uh, other embassies are like, okay, this is time to fucking leave. So we see the U.S., 
um, we see Spalding Gray as the U.S. consul. Again, no ta- name. No name. U.S. Just, consul. Just U.S. consul being yeah. taken out into a plane. Meanwhile, the Soviets are bailing too and getting their ambassador out of there. Everybody's starting to leave. Um, but Shanberg, obviously, he's a journalist, so he wants to know what's going on. He meets up with Rockov, and they are again arrested, this time by the Khmer Rouge, who are in the city. Uh, and they're about to be hauled away, thrown into an APC and hauled away, but Pran knows that they're probably going to kill them. Now, they didn't touch Pran, because Pran's a Cambodian civilian, so as far as they're concerned, he's cool for the moment. So he goes and he starts negotiating with the guard, and eventually he gives him his watch, and manages to get in the APC with them. And and what what is interesting here, um, and I mean, we might as well mention it now while we're at the scene, is that all of the... Anytime someone is speaking... In the language, uh, which I, I, okay, what, what language? Would it be in Cambodian? I don't think that's a language. That's a good question, Brendan. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they speak Vietnamese or if they speak uh, something specifically called Cambodian. Well, whichever language they're using, anytime someone is speaking not English, we don't have subtitles ever in this this whole movie. No, and it actually, and and it's fine for the most part because you can generally figure out what they're talking about because you see what's going on in the scene contextually. It's relatively easy to figure out. It's not like they're having big, long, deep monologues in Cambodia. Well, there, I mean, I'm going to get it later into parts that I don't think it works as well, but for this scene, Mm -hmm. for the tension, I think it works because you're, you're, you're basically worrying for these journalists. Yeah, and because Pran is trying his damnedest to, to talk these guys out of just hauling them off and killing them because that's what the Khmer Rouge do and we'll get there. They're, yeah, they're, they're not nice people. Not nice people. But so they manage to, so he gets into the APC with them, they go through some shit, uh, there's some fighting going on outside and whatever, but they eventually manage to get out and they go to the French embassy for protection because the French embassy hasn't pulled out yet. Now, <laughs> that might have something to do with France's long colonial history in that region. If you know anything about the Vietnam War, you'll know France was a major... Uh, factor in that happening um, for other movies about colonial stuff see zulu see zulu yeah so the Khmer rouge at a certain point say that okay uh all all, all cambodian civilians you can't be in the embassies you got to get out you i, come I don't back into the general population i don't want to skip over the fact that um dith Pran chooses to stay yeah, he wants to because stay. they evacuate a shit ton of people. Yeah, they absolutely evacuate um, a shit ton Dith of people. Dithpran's family gets to go, but he decides to stay because he's also a journalist, right? He's the he's the interpreter, but he's also a journalist. Well, here's the thing: he wants to he wants to stay in the embassy for protection. But yeah, they, but but they're ordering all Cambodians but now, yeah. to be yeah. evacuated. So so obviously, uh, Rockoff and and Shanberg don't want him to go because he's like their comrade. And Swain, bug. there's and the, Swain. the gentleman played by Julian Sands, who yes. we didn't mention earlier, but he's also in this he's movie. there as well. Yeah, he's um, there too. He's there too. So they come up with a plan. Obviously, Rockoff's a photographer, so he knows how to develop film. He doesn't have a whole lot of developer, but he figures if they can get a picture of of Pran, that they can make him a fake passport, a fake yeah. British passport, so that he won't be taken. So they spend a good portion taking to take a picture of him and then he keeps trying to develop the pictures but they just don't have enough developer it's very american spy movie yeah very american spy movie and and as they develop it it keeps fading it keeps fading and they finally get a picture that they think is good and they put it in the in the in the passport and everything and they pull it out and it's faded again yeah and it's too late they can't do anything about it so pran ends up having to leave and go out into the um kind of general population where the yeah we don't we, we honestly don't know what's going on with him yet we don't we know what's know. going on but i can tell you a little bit about what's going on because we got to talk about the Khmer rouge okay brennan so the Khmer rouge was a communist movement in uh cambodia that kind of started in the 50s it was one of many communist movements in the region obviously we had like the the communism communists in uh, vietnam that were uh, uh you know obviously they were fighting the americans once the vietnam war kind of kicked off in kind we had communists in laos 
it was a lot of communists in that area. But the Khmer Rouge now were real bastards as far as communists go. Because communism, like if you if you dig into like kind of what communism, like the Marxist, specifically Marxist communism or Marxism. Groucho Marx? Um, it's international. <laughs> the idea is, is that you are part of the international class of workers. You're part of the proletariat. You're all in it together, regardless of nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that famous phrase, you know, workers, workers of, of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. But this version of communism was a very xenophobic, very nationalist uh, com- version of communism. In, actually, in a lot of ways, like China. I don't want to say that Chinese communism is nearly as awful as the Khmer Rouge was, but it has its moments. Mm. So they were racist, they were xenophobic, they were super nationalistic, and most importantly to me, they were anti-intellectual. Yeah. So what they had done is they had a program called Year Zero, and this was a massive social engineering program that... Pol Pot, who was the one of the main guy that was leading the uh, what what is known as Democratic Kampuchea. Don't be fooled by his hilarious name. Yeah, his hilarious his name is hilarious, but he was he was brother number one. He was the guy that was kind of driving the show. Now he spent a lot of time in Paris as a young man, read a lot of Stalinist and Maoist literature, and kind of brought that to his version of what he thought communism should be. So they they wanted to do this Year Zero thing, and that was the idea of Year Zero was that the revolution not only has to, like, destroy the government, it has to destroy the culture, too. Like, essentially, you want to wipe out everything that came before, and instead now, the culture is the revolution. That is the culture. That is the new order of things. Forget about what happened before. Which is ironic, too, because they also, part of this, uh, the Khmer Rouge's view, is they wanted to return to this glory that they... Uh, remember from a particular era of Cambodian history where they had like an empire, you know, from I think it was about 1800 to 1400. This was this area they were looking at. One of the things they wanted to return to was an agrarian society. They wanted it to be this socialist agrarian. You just, is like farmers all working together. Now, most uh, most communist ideologies involve, you know, the the factory workers of the city and like the farm workers of the country, but Really, this one focused specifically on the peasants, the farm workers, because what they did in the cities was they then evacuated everybody. Once they had taken control of the country, they evacuated all the civilians out of the cities, which is a massive fucking thing to pull off, and forced them to work on collective farms, which is something that happened in the Soviet Union in the 30s and whatever. And it always works so well. Mm. But in addition to that, uh, they also pretty much killed anybody who wasn't a ethnic Cambodian worker or farmer. And even then, they still killed them. But if you were a doctor, if you were a lawyer, if you were a teacher, if you were anybody in an intellectual profession, you were at risk of just being straight up murdered. If you wore glasses, yeah, that was enough that to get you murdered. That was the thing I heard about, yeah. Yeah, they were, uh, they were awful. And But the thing about this was that in this drive, in this social experiment to collectivize the farms and do whatever, they ended up killing a lot of people. And in... As much as 25% of Cambodia's total population was murdered between 1975 and 1979. Like, when they say the killing fields, when that name comes up, that is literally places where they took people out and they just murdered them. And a lot of times they did it with pickaxes so they could save bullets. Like and and in the movie we see a scene. We'll talk about it when we get there. But there's a scene where Death Pran ends up in a killing field and it's just bodies in a rice paddy just just decaying skeletons and and flesh and it's just it's awful it reminded me of uh did you ever see uh 
behind enemy lines with Owen Wilson. Uh, a long time ago. He falls into a mass grave at one point. It kind of reminded me of that. By what? the way, that, that movie's hilarious. That movie's on the AFI, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> it, 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 won, uh, it won the Academy Award for most camera moves in the movie. <laughs> more than Michael Bay? Yeah, even more than Michael Bay. It, it, like, the camera did not stop moving. Like, there's a scene where Owen Wilson is standing on top of a mountain and the camera is literally circling him for no reason. It's like it's like they got a helicopter and they're just like we got to see this whole thing and it just as he's like standing there talking like he's not doing anything but we have to have this huge all right we're not talking about how to well no I just want to say right now if you want to see a movie that's all, like as guilty as that if not more uh, one which is not an action movie the yeah. movie Aloha and two <laughs> an action movie uh, the Michael Bay film Thirteen Hours I think it's called. I don't know that one. Wait, is, like is Aloha that. the movie where, uh, what's her name, plays uh, Emma Hawaiian? Emma Stone plays a one-eighth uh, Chinese person or whatever. Oh, yeah. 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 So, part of uh, what the Chimers did, like I said, they, they collectivized the farms. They basically established work camps. Mm-hmm. And that's where we find Pran. Now, I'm going to, I'll just say it right now, I'll get it out of the way. Back in New York, Sydney is mounting his own kind of campaign to find Pran. Mm-hmm. And there is a scene where uh, Rockoff basically accosts him and says you're not doing enough and whatever. That stuff doesn't matter. Like, I don't know about you, Brennan, but for me, the real meat of this movie is the last half, and that's with what Pran goes through in these camps. Well, I mean, yes, but while we're at it, since you mentioned this is the moment where Rockoff confronts him in the bathroom about, you know, you knew it was going to be bad, but you Mm -hmm. let him stay, et cetera, et cetera. Why don't we hear a little bit of that scene right now? Uh, Rockoff confronting Sydney in the bathroom after he's just won Journalist of the Year won a Pulitzer in 1976. Yeah. yeah. Here it is. Uh, congratulations on your award. It was well deserved. Yeah, very Thank impressive. You. I was hoping you'd best end the song. Oh. What are you doing? You know what bothers me? What? It bothers me that you let Pran stay in Cambodia because you wanted to win that fucking award and you knew that you needed him. To I didn't have any idea what the was going to fuck you didn't. The fuck you didn't. I did everything I could, and I'm doing everything I can. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's nice to see I'm on my way to Florida. I'm telling you, I'm doing everything I can. Yeah, I'm sure you are. I didn't realize you'd been out there to see him. Don't play games with me, Al. Don't play stupid games. Nobody gets to go in there. If I thought I could, I would. I've sent out hundreds of photographs. Every relief organization on the Thai camp or jam board has got his... It's got his picture. If I saw one glimmer of hope, I'd go. I'd go today. Thank God it's not a fucking you know, 40s movie. You can't just get on a goddamn plane and make the whole world come out right. And I can't believe I'm hearing this from you. Intense. Yeah, it's a, it's um, it's a very early angry Malkovich scene. <laughs> yeah, well, and and because that that is something that uh, Shannon I mean, was trying to deal with. Like he doesn't he whether whether Pran can stay with him. They tried their best to to get him out. There is a lot of ambiguity in this movie about like whether he kind of made the right move. I mean, I don't want to. I want to save it for later because mm-hmm. I do have some thoughts on this. Yep. But um, yeah, so basically, Rockoff is like, you didn't do enough. You knew that they were yep. eventually going to be. It was eventually going to be a bad situation for Pran. Why didn't you tell him to leave, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Back to Dith Pran, who we more care about. Yeah. So so Pran is he's part of the system now. He's been sent to a collective farm. Yeah. Um, and what he has to do is he basically has to pretend that he's a dummy. Yeah, he pretend he pretends that he's not one of the like an intellectual at yeah, all. Because if he shows any signs of intelligence, chances are they're going to take him out and just shoot him or pickaxe him in the back of the head. Which I didn't like. Did he see 
intellectual people being killed because I didn't get that feeling. I I almost got the feeling I was like, did he just guess that that's what they were doing? Like, I think I think they knew about it. I think it was something that was known that was happening because they just basically based on their like he's lectures. a journalist, right? So he knows what's going on. Like, yeah, he would he would know if people were disappearing and if you know eventually you put two and two together, be like, oh, they're taking all the people that are. I feel like it was mentioned at some point. Like, I mean, maybe I just read it on Wikipedia. But... I mean, th- <laughs> we should mention too. This is the second movie. In, I mean, the Almighty Dice Roll. The, the Almighty Dice Roll. We can't mm. control it. Yeah. But this is the second movie in a row where we get a fairly long portion of the film set inside a prison camp. Yeah. Which I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, that the Lord Dice uh, deemed it so. Yeah, and our next movie will be Andersonville, the TV movie from the 90s about the Civil War. Yeah, Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption. We'll do uh, Stalag 13. Then we're going to watch the entirety of Hogan's Heroes. Uh, none of that is happening. <laughs> <laughs> so while he's in the camp, he's pretending to be simple so that they won't kill him, and he actually tries to escape at one point, and in doing so, he ends up in one of the literal killing fields, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Is this um, when he uh, tries to suck the blood off like a cow, or...? Uh, I feel like that's a little bit later okay, on. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just, and, and that I mean, that happens like right after. Needing some sort of nourishment. Like yeah, like he even will take picks care up of a lizard off the ground and puts it in his pocket for later, basically. So he ends up in a killing field, but is quickly recaptured uh, by the regime and sent back. So he's sent to a different prison camp. Yeah. And at this prison camp, he's, rather than being just a general laborer like he normally is, he was put into the service of fat, P-H-A-T, because uh, he's that fat. Uh... Put into the service of Fat, who is a uh, a Khmer Rouge commander of some sort, with a heart of gold. Well, <laughs> I mean, kind of, kind of. Um, but I, I have issues with this. But, but that's the thing; it's it's not that much of a heart of gold because he keeps trying to trip up. Uh, At first, Pran he he keeps trying to like uh, trick him into revealing that he's smarter than he thinks he is. He talks to him in English and in French, and obviously French being a colonial language there. Like, yeah. like and he's just like, mm-hmm. but doesn't Pran? Uh, finally, just kind of let him know that he's that he knows he, English. Eventually, he gets there, but yeah, but, uh, I, but it's because that's when Fat starts to trust him. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's like that's so. I mean, I think they're trying to say this is like the yeah, well, you, you, of the heart well, of gold. It, it, initially, watching it, it seems like he's just trying to fuck him over. But then, as we go on, we realize, oh well, no, Fat obviously wants to protect his son. Yeah, and wants somebody that he can trust to to take care of his son in the event that something happens to him, and that is very likely given the volatility of the regime. Uh, this is a Khmer Rouge operative that I feel like is is skeptical of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's a bit skeptical, but he's also not stupid enough to like stand up against it. Well, and... well, that's the thing, though. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. So, so he basically, so Pran ends up basically being Fat's son's nanny. He's yeah. taking care of him, but he's also doing servant work and and whatever else. Um, but as Fat begins to trust him, he finally asks him he'll take care of the boy if anything happens to him. And you know, as Cambodia had been trying to take back a lot of land that they considered historically theirs. Again, calling back to this era that is so far, so long ago to make, you know, we're going to make Cambodia great again, right? So... Mecca. That's right. <laughs> Mecca. Mecca. <laughs> so Cambodia decides that, you know what? Uh, rather than allying ourselves with our communist neighbors, we're going to start fucking with them. And so they start fucking with the Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese have just fought like a long-ass war with the United States and they're not really interested in being fucked with. So when Cambodia starts fucking with them, they're like, fuck you, and they straight up invade Cambodia. Yeah. Uh, and when they do, they one of the results we see is an attack on the camp that, that Fat and uh, Pran are in, where jets are flying overhead, they're dropping uh, rockets or whatever, bombs, try, you know, making a mess of the place. There's kind of chaos going on. Um, and in the aftermath of that, Fat is 
for some reason, some of his men are kind of uh, killing other men. Because this is a problem, too. I don't understand, though, because I thought they were just killing a civilian that didn't want to do her job or something. That's no, what I, I, thought I think they was. were killing other members of the Khmer Rouge for whatever okay. reason. And Fat goes to try to stop them. Because I guess he has enough humanity in him. He's like, we don't need to unnecessarily kill people. But in trying to stop them, he immediately gets unceremoniously shot. Yeah. Just dead. Just dead. One shot. Boom. Yeah. So, in the... I guess in the chaos of what's happening, uh, Pran makes a decision to, to bolt. And it's hel- he's helped by the fact that the fat son had a package on him that Fat had put there that had a map as well as a bunch of American currency in there to help them get out. Mm-hmm. So Pran and the boy and four other prisoners take off. Yep, go through the jungle. Go through the jungle. Long walk through the jungle, but eventually they split up. Pran, the boy, and one of the prisoners go one way, and the other three gonna go the other way. We don't know what happened to the other three. They can go their own way. They can go their own way. Go their own way. You can go your own way. Your way. So, while they're walking through the jungle, Pran at some point hands the boy over to the other prisoner, and while they're walking, the other prisoner steps on a landmine. And there's a lot of screaming as he hears the click, and he's like, no, no, don't, and then he steps off it, and boom, blows himself up, and... Doesn't blow the child up, but obviously the child gets hit with enough of a concussion that he's in a bad way. Um, well, he dies. Yeah, that's it. He's yeah, in a bad yeah. way, but he's not. I don't think he's a dead initially. No, but he he he's barely alive. And Pran grabs him and tries to take him away. But by the time Pran kind of stops and takes a look, he's dead. And Pran mourns this. Hashtag child murder. That's right. You can't have a good movie without a child murder. That's why Once Upon a Time in the West is my favorite movie. <laughs> Henry Fonda, you son of a bitch. Yep. Now that you've shed my name. (laughs) So, yeah. So, Bran mourns for a bit, but he has to keep going. And he he presses on, and as he comes up over a hill, he sees the greatest sight I think he probably ever seen in his life. A Red Cross uh, tent. Mm -hmm. Tents. Red Cross kind of facility. A hospital, you might call it. Red Cross. So, he gets there. And when he gets there, then word is sent to to Sidney Shanberg that fucking Bran is alive. He's super stoked. He jumps on the next plane to Cambodia. I don't know. Do they have regular flights to Cambodia yeah, at sure. that point? He's a journalist. Sure, He'll figure it out. He's a journalist. He's got connections. Hops on the plane, gets there, sees Pran. They see each other. They have a moment. Imagine all the people. They, they, they walk up to each other, and Sam Watterson says, forgive me. And Pran just looks at him and smiles and says, there's nothing to forgive. And they no. embrace. Living for today. Because that plays over it. And so they have a lovely reunion, and that's the end of the movie. And we learn a little bit about, I guess the, there's some text there about what happened in the killing fields. And Yep. And now, you, what you also have to understand, too, is that the leaders of this regime, for the most part, didn't really face any justice until way later on. That's Pol Pot died in 1998, and he never saw the inside of a courtroom that's or jail insane. cell. That's insane. Yeah, no, it's it's nuts. Well, see, what you have to understand what happened in the... Like, so the, the Khmer Rouge regime was outed, outed, was ousted, I guess is the proper word, hmm. in 1979 by the Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese set up uh, another communist party in the country that was a little more moderate uh, in the government. And then that was the government for about a decade. And then they transitioned to the monarchy again. They went back to a monarchy. So to this day, Cambodia is a monarchy. Uh, Queen Cambodia. Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyways, the point is, is that shit was bad in Cambodia. And uh, now we have this movie. Well, and let's. I, I want to talk about a little bit about the background of this movie, then. Please do. Uh, so obviously, this movie is based on the account of Sidney Shamberg, the reporter portrayed by Sam Waterston. Uh, he wrote an article that later became a book. 
uh, called The Death and Life of Dith Pran, A Story of Cambodia. Um, the, the By account- the way, just just a heads up, Dith Pran did not die until 2008. Yeah. So yeah. he lived a pretty full life. And he worked for the New York Times, New York Times with Sydney afterwards. Uh, so as far as accuracy of this movie, um, Sidney Sherbrooke has stated that like he they made absolutely sure that the film didn't take any uh, any liberties with his story. Mm-hmm. However, there are people there are people that have said his story may not have been the most accurate thing. Oh, well, and his story was the least interesting part of the movie. Well, I mean, no, I'm I'm talking just his account of everything. Oh, oh, okay. So Al Rockoff, the real guy, yeah, uh, was particularly incensed by how he and some of the uh, some of the embassy of events were depicted. So the whole photograph thing, like yeah. apparently he's saying like that didn't really happen that way at all. Uh, he says he actually believes Schamberg was quote a lying coward. Um, and he insists that the yeah he so he insisted that the passport was not rigged in a makeshift dark room and in fact was concocted just using an old photo print. So he says he just added that whole thing to just kind of make like a spy plot. Yeah. Uh, in the movie, and then apparently Pratt just said, "Oh, I don't, I don't want to use the fake passport," and left the embassy on his own. Hmm. So there's no there's nothing like you know Sydney's not this great hero who went to all these lengths and then failed. Also. Uh, Pran's uh, post-embassy trials were tweaked a little bit by the filmmakers. Apparently the cow blood, so there's a moment where mm. he's getting cow blood for nourishment. Uh, that didn't, that wasn't exactly what happened. He actually just saw some rice and then he was beaten by the villagers. Mm. Um, it, it, okay, so it also, there's another thing where we didn't, he didn't really talk about stumbling upon the actual killing fields, mm. but I mean, if you're going to call the movie that, I guess, I get how well, you put and, that and scene in there. And we have to remember, Dith Pran coined the term killing fields to yeah. describe what was going on there, those specific areas where people were executed. Oh, so uh, when he actually escaped, he made it to Thailand, and the reason he went back to, the reason he eventually escaped from there mm. is because he was afraid that they would discover his American ties. Uh. So he didn't go to the Red Cross, that was not a thing. Now... Hang S. Nor. We have to talk about him because yes, he's absolutely. almost as interesting as the actual guy. Well, that's the thing is because Dr. Nor, and well, again, Dr. Nor, uh, went through all of this stuff too. Yeah. So he had never acted before in his life, but he was a survivor of the Khmer Rouge prison camp, mm-hmm. much like Pran was. In fact, some people say that they missed each other by like a few months. Wow. Like it was really close. Uh, he was a doctor, as his name, An Dr. Obstetrician, if I remember correctly. Yep. But here, listen to this though. This is startling to me when i read this I, this is depressing so he was with his wife and she was going through labor and because he didn't want to tell them that he, he didn't want them to know that he was one of the intelligentsia he didn't want them to know that he was an intellect mm-hmm. he basically sat there and watched his wife die during childbirth wow. um, because if he didn't they would have killed all three of them so if he showed he had any sort of any sort of ability in that in the OBGYN area. That's right. So he spent a, he spent four years in the camp. By the way, I don't I think this movie does a very good job at timelines because I do not I didn't feel the four years at all. That mm-hmm. felt like he was there for a little bit and then he was all of a sudden free. Uh, he made it to the U. So he eventually makes it to the U.S. Uh, hang us, Nor. And apparently he was spotted by a casting director when he was at a Cambodian wedding. Huh. So he was just at a Cambodian wedding in Los Angeles. See that Cambodian guy over there? He looks, <laughs> he stands out amongst all these other Cambodian guys. Well, apparently um, he had also heard about the project and people kept telling him, oh, you know, you've been there. Like you should at least do something like go advise or something. Yeah. He's like, oh no, no. He's like, I'm an old man. They don't want like an old man to be on this movie. Um, Cause I don't think Death Prime was that old. Hmm. But he was like, no, they don't want, like, an older man. I'm not an actor. Like, they want someone famous. But 
I mean, that's what happened. So another thing is when when Hangnor was originally captured, uh, him and his colleague were in a military hospital operating on a wounded man. And this is what he says. He says, I'm operating on my patient. I'm cleaning out the intestine. It's nine o'clock when a uh, Chimer Rouge get into the operating room. He put, put a gun on my right ear. He asks me, are you a doctor? I say, no, he, uh, no, he just left by the back door. I am not a doctor. But obviously, you know, he was operating. Yeah. The Chimer Rouge ran away to find the doctor. So, uh, he tells his friend, we have to leave this patient. His colleague says, no, no, we have to finish. And he said, we have to leave. If the Chimer Rouge come back, they will kill all of us. That is like, that is a terrifying situation. Oh, terrifying. Absolutely. So there was even a moment on set. There's a moment in the film where Hang has a plant, a little like, uh, it's like a tomato or something. Mm-hmm. And he has it in front of his, uh, basically his sleeping area. And we got, we should say the Chimer Rouge. I don't know if we mentioned this, but there were children in that army. Oh, oh yeah. I forgot to mention that, but yes, they absolutely made vast use of child soldiers because yeah. child soldiers were way easier to indoctrinate and you could send them out and say, Hey, you should go out and pickaxe these people in the back of the head. And they'd be like, sure. Yeah, so there's child soldiers. So a young actress is playing a child soldier. She takes out the plant, breaks it in half in front of him, and stares at him. Hangnor basically had a PTSD moment. He started screaming, she's Kaimaroo, she's Kaimaroo. The director had to yell cut and talk him down for like 10 minutes. This is a real thing that happened on the set. Um, And this is why I have an issue with this movie. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Noor, I will say, for a guy that has never acted, obviously he does a phenomenal job. Oh yeah, no, he's great. He's, he's, he's very convincing. But I think the reason he's so convincing is the man went through this for real. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I know he did, he didn't sign up for it under duress. Yeah. He didn't sign up for this movie under duress. Nobody forced him to be in the yeah. movie. But, to seek out someone who, and, and actually cast someone who had actually been through this and then put them through it again, albeit in a movie, yeah. that, that's a, there's an ethical line there yeah. that doesn't feel like it's worth crossing. It, it's reminiscent of the story of the, the Titanic, the lady that survived the Titanic, and then they put her in a movie about it a month after it happened. And I mean, she it's, I mean, that one, re-traumatized. Yeah, I mean, that one is definitely worse. Like, this was, bit, yeah, this was like 10 years later. Yeah. But it still just strikes me, especially with that story about the little girl, mm. about him freaking out, thinking she's actually Kaima Rouge that showed up on the set to, like, assassinate mm. him. Like, that's somebody who's dealing with some real, like, serious PTSD. Well, and that's the thing, is in 1983, there could very well still be Kaima Rouge fucking oh, yeah. people out there. I mean, know? there's a, there's a uh, cons- there's several conspiracy theories, because Hang Noor was shot. He was murdered mm-hmm. in uh, in ninety six. Oh, was he? I yeah, I know that. So he's murdered outside of his. Uh, I don't know if it's outside of his home, but he was shot to death. And uh, basically, you, you know the scene you talked about where he gave the person his watch. Yeah, that happened in real life. He offered his watch, but in this instance, the guy shot him anyway. Hmm. And there are conspiracy theories that that may have been a Kymer Rouge, Kymer, a former Kymer Rouge yeah. supporter operative. Of course, most of those have been dismissed because they're pretty much the, not, probably but nonsense. But you see, in 1996, the Chimer Rouge was still a thing, and they didn't really disband totally until about 1999, uh, you know, a year after Pol Pot had finally died. So another thing I found interesting about this movie, and I looked into it a little bit, was the inclusion of Spalding Gray. Because mm. he plays the U.S. Consul, and you wouldn't think of Spalding Gray as an actor in like a typical movie. He's had a, he's had uh, I, I learned this literally leading up to this episode, but he's had movies where it's just him monologuing. Uh, he's he's a, a writer, monologist, or whatever. Yeah. I guess that's what you call him. Uh, like, there's a movie called Gray's Anatomy, not the TV show, and it's directed by Steven Soderbergh, and it's just him doing monologues. 
And he's not singing the monologues. No, he's just oh. saying stuff. Okay. And I found it like when I was doing research for the show, I was watching it for a little bit. I found it so engaging. I was watching it. I I didn't turn off for about 10, 15 minutes. Now that I think about it, if you sing a monologue, it's called a song. <laughs> yes, that's correct. So a little bit about Spalding Gray. He actually got his start in porn. <laughs> He was. I never heard that. His start in film was it was in porn, uh, a pornographic like, like starring or like writing it. Well, he was in a pornographic film called Farmer's Daughters. That's a classic. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that was him. In which he gang rapes gang rapes a woman along with a bunch of other people. I was going to say you have to be with other people. You can't gang rape a lady by himself. No, that would just be that would be just a, rape, a rape, or yeah. normal rape. You yeah. don't need a gang for that. Uh, it seems like I've never seen it, but it seems like a very vile, hateful kind of adult film. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he actually does one of his monologues uh, later on after the killing fields uh, he does it based on his experience filming this movie hmm. so it's a movie called swimming to Cambodia and yeah he talks about this movie and I just want to play a little clip here of Spalding Gray kind of talking about the killing fields sure but just before we do that does he have any lines in this movie yeah he talks to Sydney in the office uh, when right. they're okay. when they're before he gives uh, death Prance family kind of the the way home right okay and he also he also asks him about the accidental bombing yes. early in the movie. Yes. So this is Spalding. Yeah, that would be weird if they didn't give him lines, right? <laughs> but he still got billed. <laughs> yeah, or he's a, he's a guy known for his monologues. It's <laughs> he's like not allowed to talk. It's like what's his face in that? Uh, not the Marvel Avengers, but the 1998 Avengers, where they had that comedian Eddie Izzard. Eddie Izzard. And he give him no lines. Word. Yeah. What a waste. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, surely that movie could have benefited from anything. Or, or as a more modern example, uh, Ray Fiennes in Holmes and Watson says almost nothing. Hmm. So here's Spalding Gray talking a little bit about the Killing Fields. I said, "Wow, that's an incredible story." You know, it really—it's so hopeful. It sounds like someone made it up. I, I'm going to tell you right now, I would do anything to be in your film. I don't even know what roles you're looking for, but I want to be really straight with you. I'm not very political. I don't know anything about secret bombing, and in fact, I've never voted before in my life. And Roland says, perfect. We're looking for the American ambassador's aid. <laughs> but I can't promise you anything. I have to go out to the coast to cast out there. We have to see how the whole puzzle shapes together. I'll be back in the city in three months' time. We'll chat again then. And I went out and I thought, you know, I want this, I want to be involved in this project more than any other project I've almost been involved in. You know. But what, what, what can I do? I'm, I'm going to tell you part of why I gave up professional acting was I got so tired of waiting for the big indifferent machine to make up its so-called mind. You know, I wanted to have some influence over my own destiny, my own life, you know. So if I wanted to be in this film, I thought, what can I do to influence? I mean, the first thing that occurred to me was prayer. And I thought, mm, Spalding, it's been so long, you know. <laughs> so that's just a little clip of him. Uh, that's from uh, Swimming to Cambodia, which, uh, you know, I might actually, I've got the movie now, I might actually end up watching it. So I'm the sure whole it would thing. be fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, oh, by the way, directed by, that one is actually directed by Jonathan Demme. Ah, of uh, Silence of the Lambs fame. Yes. Yes. So, Jason, let's dive into this movie. Is he your favorite Demme? What's, who's the other Jonathan one? Demme. Ted, Ted Demme. What yeah. has Ted Demme done? Uh, Blow, among other things. I think I like Jonathan more. Okay. <laughs> well, He's also give, dead. If you're only giving me those two <laughs> options, <laughs> I think I like Sam's Little Lambs more than Blow. <laughs> um, so right off the bat, I mean, we get some very Apocalypse Now type narration at the beginning. We're like, I met Death Pran and he changed my life forever. I was in the jungle. I was in the shit. Like that whole thing. Like, 
It's not quite Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now is Saigon. Shit. Well, I don't mean the exact dialogue. Well, I mean, it should be. Right? Okay. Um, okay, well, I know we usually save this for the end, but I'm just going to tell you right now, Jason, I'm not crazy about this movie. No. Um, it as, as far as it being on the BFI, mm-hmm. it felt like a very Americanized movie. Yeah, I, I feel like this must be a British movie because it must have been financed by British money. I guess so, because like... Roll, I get, well, I guess Roland Joffe is British French director. Oh, I was uh, Julian oh, Sands. I'm Ju- thinking of Joffre. No, Julian Sands is the only like lead British guy in the and movie. He's barely in it. He's not in it very much. Yeah, he's he's definitely like the third, like the fourth journalist mm-hmm. of importance. Um, but yeah, no, I like I have a real problem. I don't know. I can watch movies where the lead character is kind of ambiguous and you kind of don't know how you feel about him. I really, really, really don't like Sidney Shamberg in this movie. He, I, here's the thing. They want you to care by the end, by the time the film ends, Hmm. you're supposed to have this big moment of like, Oh my God, these two great friends have reunited. It's this emotional moment. Oh, John Lennon is playing. Oh, it's so amazing. But they didn't, they haven't built that up well enough for me. In the first half of the movie, I see them as employer employee. I don't really see that whole friendship. Uh, mm. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Like, yeah, what do you think? Do you think it's... I, I think you're right. I, I don't think the Sidney Shanberg character. Yeah. Oh no. And I'm not saying like. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Who the knows real in real life? Like, I'm sure it was wonderful. But the character as portrayed, yeah, it just it, I don't give a fuck about him. I don't no. Care. Yeah. He's, he's 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 literally there just to give agency to, well, agency to to give a reason to have dat. I was gonna say dat fan. That's a comedian. <laughs> Uh, Dith Pran. Uh, Dith Pran. There's a reason, you know, he, he's the white guy connection to the foreigner. Yeah. So that we can relate to somebody in the movie, this white guy with the beard, Sam Watterson. <laughs> Sam Watterson. Because God forbid, because we couldn't think, oh, Jesus, the idea of us relating to somebody who's not American? <laughs> Anyways, the point is... You become is that, a, a, a surly general Yes, there. absolutely. The point is that this whole movie should have been about Death Pran. It should have been his story straight from the beginning. We shouldn't yeah. even... I mean... Sydney at most should have been a supporting character. The well, and I mean that. Go, the, I mean, you know why that's the case. It's because it's ba- it's his book. Yeah, and that's why book. he's the lead guy. And I'm not even saying Sam Waterston is bad in the movie. He's fine. He, I mean, he's he's good. I mean, Oscar nomination though. Yeah, it's a bit uh, much. Uh, I mean, certainly, I, I, Doctor Nor deserved his Oscar nomination because he's fucking great. Yeah. Um, and that and, and that ultimately is what the movie is to me because yeah the first like half of that movie when they're in the embassy and stuff who gives a shit I don't give a fuck about Sidney Shamberg but when we start seeing what's going on in the actual camp and in Cambodia at the time that's what's interesting to me and I think that's what people need to see because I I look at this movie Brendan in the way that I look at a movie like Schindler's List this is a movie that you should see it's not necessarily a movie that you're going to enjoy it's not necessarily a movie that's going to entertain you you're not going to sit down and get drunk with your buddies and be like yeah fuck let's watch The Killing Fields at least you shouldn't because if you do you're a terrible terrible person yeah (gasps) so don't have a Killing Fields drinking game a la the one we came up with for (laughs) Zhivago Dr. Zhivago drinking game (laughs) yeah I got a I got a mild buzz from that so they're really big drinks so, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, weight. ultimately, yeah, uh, uh, Pran is the guy. He's the guy. And and like Schindler's List, you should see this movie because it is 
you know, it's especially it's a thing a lot a lot of people in the West know about as much. We know about the Vietnam War because we've got million Vietnam War movies. Yeah. But there's really not that many movies about Cambodia. This is, I think, the first. Yeah, this honestly. was the one that really introduced people to One it. of the very few. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't name another one offhand. I, I no. know there are. Because I've seen I mean, references to them while I was looking there, about this movie. But. Yeah, there are definitely some out there. But the, I mean, I think, to me, it's almost like the legacy of the movie and the importance of the movie are more impressive than the movie. Yeah. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I think there's a reason, I think that's a reason for it being so far down the list. Cause I think they, it merits inclusion. See, I don't know. I don't even know if I would say it merits inclusion. If you're going to say like, okay, we want something to represent this era of history. Mm. Fine. But I don't think it's that good. I yeah, but it, it was the first one, like you say. This this was probably the movie that introduced a lot of Americans to what had happened in Cambodia. And, and I mean, and I mean, this is a movie with a Rotten Tomatoes score of like ninety two percent, an audience score of like ninety three percent. So I, I mean, this I, is. I really think that all comes from people that that think again are under the view that you should see this movie. Regardless. Yeah, like it is a a good education to watch a movie like this. Well, and you mentioned Schindler's List. I want to talk about this too. Mm. The movie... Now, I'm not saying, like, I wanted this to be, like, a gory horror movie mm. or, like, you know, blood spurting out at every cost, but Schindler's List is an effective film. Mm. A very, very, very effective film. And it's a very, very good film. Mm. The thing with Schindler's List is they didn't... Um, they didn't cut away from the brutality. No. Like, you, you saw it right in front of your face. Yeah. This movie does that a little bit, yeah. But I feel like in order to... It certainly really... could have benefited from a couple of pickaxes to the back of the head. Well, I mean, in order to really get across how yeah. brutal this was, I think they needed to be more... Uh, I think it needed to be more uh, in, like more bloody? I would say there would need to be at least one or one explicit scene showing a killing field in action to show like them just lining people up and just dropping them in the water. like Even, um, even I think it was like... I think it was Death Pran... And Sydney, I think the real people, even they, I think even they said they were surprised by the the film's kind of unwillingness to kind of push forward uh, the brutality of the. But I guess the, the question is, if you look at that contemporary of 1984, were there any movies that that were talking about something like this that did it that? All I mean, out? I mean, Apocalypse Now is a pretty yeah, but Apocalypse film. Now, right? But Apocalypse Now is not. It's not about Vietnam. It's about that story about mm. Kurtz and about you know because it, it's based on um, why can't I think of the name of the book Heart of Darkness mm. so it, it, it's grafting that Heart of Darkness plot onto Vietnam Vietnam is in, incidental that is the setting this this is very much the movie is the setting like the, the the Cambodia what's going on in Cambodia that is front and center this isn't just a story set against the backdrop of Cambodia this is about what went down in this regime um, I want to talk about Sam Waterston a little bit because did you find like, now he's from Massachusetts, so he has that accent, right? Because I found like his accent came and went. It was a little inconsistent. Yeah. yeah I, I, at one point was... I'm like, wait, is he from Boston? Why has he got this weird, like... Well, yeah. Sometimes he'd be like, I need to find Dith, Pr Dith Pran. He'd go a little Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he'd be like, I need to find Dith Pran. And I'm like... Because the real guy, Sidney Schamberg, is also from Massachusetts. Yeah. So I'm wondering if he was trying to dial down his accent for the character, and then his real one just started coming or out. If, or if there were scenes they used where he had a little too a little too high, a little too Boston, and they were like, can you dial it back, Sam? And they just ended up using those uh, those particular cuts. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. Still great on Law and Order, though. <laughs>
this is really the point of the movie where I mm, just did, could not get behind him. Mm. So we have this moment here where Sydney and Dithpran are realizing like stuff's starting to heat up. Like mm-hmm. it's starting to get bad in Cambodia. We might need to leave. Yeah. The way he asks him if he's going to stay or if he's going to leave. I mean, I just want to play this clip and then we'll talk about it. Okay. They say that when this place goes up, they think that a lot of people are going to get killed. A lot of people. All right, I've arranged for the evacuation of you and your family. So now it's up to you. What do you want to do? Do you want to stay or do you want to leave? And how about you? That's none of your business. Do you want to stay or do you want to leave? I know. You love my family, Sydney. But me, I'm reporter too, Sydney. You know what I mean? decide this now. We don't have to decide it right now. Take it easy. But we're going to have to make up our minds pretty soon, right? So, I mean, it's kind of neutral there. I'm not, you're not really sure. But then, when Dithpran ultimately makes this, makes the decision to stay, mm. Sydney is, like, has a look of, like, elation. Yeah. Like, he is happy that Dith Pratt has decided to stay. He knows his contact is staying and he's going to have a direct line. To... He even go, but it even like gets to the point where Dith Pratt drives him back to the hotel. He gets out and takes a picture of him and he's like, smile. Like he just sent his family to America and is facing possible death mm. in Cambodia to work for you. And you are, uh, yeah, you have to wonder like, is that, was that something in, on the filmmakers part? They went for dramatic purposes or was that, maybe how he actually was i don't know and but this is this is sydney's account yeah it's so book, i mean if so. that's i mean <laughs> he makes himself look bad in his own book i guess you got to trust that yeah um uh you mentioned the thing about the Khmer rouge kind of being welcomed with open arms i questioned that a bit too yeah you you have to wonder uh about that like how much of that like i mean i i don't know how that actually went down like uh, what what this parade was if it was a legit if people were legitimately excited to see the Khmer Rouge because they may very well have been because i don't know how shitty the cambodian government was before the Khmer Rouge took over but usually when a terrible regime takes over it's because the one before it was also pretty bad <laughs> okay so this is where I, <laughs> one thing i really don't like about this movie is the soundtrack it is a pretty grating um, this is, I just want to play an ex- a quick example of the kind of choices. Yeah. Now, some of this soundtrack is like traditional Cambodian, like, like the, uh, you play at the beginning, the theme of the movie had the, whatever, the ringing jars, I think they're called or something yeah. like that. They have a real interesting sound to them, but yeah, Brendan will, sh- will, uh, let you all hear a little bit of what the score in this movie sounds like. This is, this is, this is just one example here. And then keep in mind, this is like a high, like, this is like a tense scene, hmm. uh, where they're captured by the Khmer Rouge. Uh, 
It's like an underground level of like Sonic the Hedgehog or something. I was waiting for the beat to drop and it never dropped. <laughs> but no, it's very 80s and yeah, very atonal sounding. Like, and I, you know what? That I, I understand it from an artistic perspective of it does help convey kind of the just chaos that's going on at this time uh, as, as the Kaimarus are doing their thing, but it doesn't make it easy to watch or listen to. <laughs> and here's another really weird choice. So when Sydney is back in New York, um, halfway through the film he's watching like tv footage of cambodia and yeah. it goes on for like it does go on for a long time he's sitting in front of that tv for quite a while five minutes like we're literally <laughs> it's like a, it's like it's like a almost a joke where someone was like filmed a tv showing the movie braveheart like you know what i mean like and then this and then this plays over it Reminds me of the scene in the Big Lebowski where where the dude goes in to meet uh, the Big Lebowski after his after Bunny gets captured and he's like sitting in front of the fireplace and this loud fucking opera music is playing and he's strong men can cry strong men can cry I I just wanted to bring up the Big Lebowski honestly so let's continue <laughs> so the Killing Fields. <laughs> Or does he say strong men do cry? I forget it. I, and I only watched it like two weeks ago. God damn. If you haven't seen The Big Lebowski, folks, uh, I don't know if it's on the BFI list. I don't think it's British in the least. <laughs> nope. But uh, I mean, Dave, David Thewlis is in it. That's enough. Hey, uh, Jeff Bridges, get at us on Twitter. What's That's the right. line? <laughs> How sure British you... is The Big Lebowski? Yeah, I'm sure you remember, right? Who in... who funded? Surely there was a British guy that funded that movie. It's, it's British blood money. <laughs> uh... One, another thing I man I, th- I feel like I'm ragging on this movie but like I'm sorry this is, mm. um, another thing that I had a problem with is a lot of things just get solved a lot of issues in this movie get solved off screen or just very easily mm-hmm. I found like like the whole thing where they're looking for the uh, the photo the, the film to make Pran's photo it was like very um, oh what are we going to do where are we going to find the film where are we going to find the film oh my god where is it where is it where is it uh, oh no I just uh, oh I found it we're good <laughs> we're alright and I mean we talked about the New York stuff not being very interesting mm-hmm. he, Sydney has like a monologue there about like oh maybe I did maybe I didn't uh, do the right thing I'm like yeah no shit like okay yeah no here's the thing when Dithpran is in the prison camp the voiceovers because those seem like letters that he's writing but there's mm. no way he's writing letters to Sydney because he's like dear Sydney this is happening they do this they do this and they do this and I'm like yeah, where did you write that down unless that was like he was just composing letters in his head to keep himself sane but maybe he was getting out information some way but they never they never if that was the case and it may very well have been because journalists are very resourceful true uh, when it but comes I mean to I like, info out, but there was nothing that led us to believe yeah right? I feel like if that was the case they should have showed something Been a little more explicit about it yeah it, it also feels very like oh now we have to explain to the audience the history of what's going it's on like a, in a way that, that like it's it feels lazy well it's there's other like, ways to do it it's more like hey we're not going to put uh, subtitles on anybody speaking so we're going to have to use the voiceover to convey what we need to convey it, 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 narratively it doesn't make sense to me though no. it's like why are you translating for us if you're there like you don't need to be telling 
That's how he practices his English in his head, is just speaking it all in English as if he's doing a monologue. Yeah. Um, more stuff I don't like. Hey, the uh, the bromance kind of between Pran and his captor, like the guy fat. who has the kid, fat, yeah. It, okay. Well, I mean, you know, you could look at that as like... There's no build-up, there's no... I, I, I guess the question that, that Metal Gear Solid once asked is, can love bloom on a battlefield? And uh, uh, I'm well, not saying that they they were in love, but I'm saying that they clearly, you know, they both were humans and they both were able to acknowledge other each other as humans. Like Fat could have easily been the type of like revolutionary that, like like Strelnikov, who had just lost all fucking emotion and like consideration for the human element of things, but he wasn't. He was a guy that still clearly thought, like obviously thought of his son, and in thinking of his son, was willing to kind of expose himself to to Pran in a way that if it were anybody else could have got him easily killed. If he'd had exposed himself, if he'd been that vulnerable to anybody else in the Cairo Rouge, he could have just been straight up killed. I just I just didn't feel like the movie did a great job of yeah, no, building I don't think that. There just... wasn't enough time involved. No. And again, that comes down to the movie should have been the whole story of Pran's kind of um, like, like you know, getting getting captured essentially by the regime and then his time through those years. If that had been the whole movie, then maybe we would have had a little longer time to get to know Fat and to kind of yeah. understand him better from where he's coming from. Yeah, if we cut the first part to like half an hour, kind yeah. of most of the New York stuff, I feel like it maybe it would have been better. Yeah. Uh, at least like a little bit tighter. Yeah. Uh, and like, I, I mean, like the thing is too, like it doesn't, like I don't care about the character no. Fat. Like you really don't. So much so that when he's killed, yeah. not only am I he's not like, reacting, oh, yeah, not only am I not reacting, Pran isn't reacting. His yeah. kid doesn't even react. He's just yeah. like, hmm. Well, I mean, and be fair though, you know, if you've been in that regime for a while, that's just par for the course at that point. Like the idea of somebody getting killed being like tragic is just like, <laughs> no, it just happens all the time. It's just a matter of how we live our lives now. And to cap it off, the movie almost got me a little bit, even though, I mean, the song Imagine is mm. pretty on the nose, but you it know, probably was less on the nose in 1984. Perhaps. It did evoke a little, you know, okay, it's kind of an emotional moment. Until, until the fucking last lines of this movie. Because Sydney has the gall to go up to Dithpran. Not go, are you okay? How have you been? Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? And of course, nothing to forgive, Sydney. Nothing to forgive. Yeah. I hated that last line. Because it was just like the whole movie was about him. Yeah. He made the whole thing Sydney made the whole thing about him rather than Dith Prince. You're absolutely right. And, and, and my white man perspective was like, oh, look, they're having a nice moment. They're friends again. And then you just pointed out, it's like, oh, no, he was just a fucking asshole who's self centered. Like, do you forgive me? Rather than, as you say, like, is everybody okay? Are yeah, like, all right. Anything like anything? that. <laughs> anything like that. He arrives as basically a white knight on this, like, yeah. limo. Like, you know what I mean? Like A white knight that doesn't have anything to do because it's already been done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sydney, Sydney does nothing in this movie. Like, he accomplishes... I mean, no, he, in the movie, I, absolutely. I mean, perhaps in real life, he his stories and stuff were bringing awareness I mean, yes. to this issue that otherwise yeah. wouldn't have been done. But, yeah, in the movie, I mean, what is he? He's trying to find the guy. I mean, it's good that he's doing that. There's but... literally a scene where when he's in the rubble of the village that gets bombed, there's a kid that comes up and touches his face almost as if he's like a Jesus figure. Yeah. And I'm like, come on, movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably because uh, he's a white guy and they maybe hadn't uh, seen white guys before. <laughs> or at least not for a while since the French had bailed. I mean, I don't want I don't want to skip to the next thing. If you got if you have anything else you want to kind of bring up about this uh, this this film before we go into um, 
kind of the. Well, let the, me check my notes here and see what I had written down because okay, I didn't write this as many probably notes get on this. Cut one. in post. Uh, I thought the Volkswagen ambulance was really cool. <laughs> that was pretty neat. Uh, Coach showed up. That was cool. <laughs> there was a lot of good like chaos of war scenes, like really like where just shit was going on and you weren't sure what was happening. Like you know, like it would be in that situation. That was really cool. Uh, the score was super eighties. Uh, and just uh, really uh, like it doesn't yeah. fit. It didn't fit at all. I read something. I read because uh, I, was, I was I was looking up some stuff for this movie. And I read one review that was like, "Oh, I love how the score like just really increased the tension." And I'm like, "Okay." I wouldn't say it increases the tension so much as it gives me maybe a tiny modicum of the physical pain that some people in that movie might have been going through. <laughs> right, <laughs> a very tiny modicum. Very tiny. <laughs> Do not compare your pain listening to. <laughs> Terrible Watching music. this movie was like going through the Chimer Rouge regime. <laughs> oh man! So this movie, I mean, it goes to the Oscars. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's nominated for seven awards. Yep. It's uh, so the ones it doesn't win, but is nominated for, is uh, Best Picture. Mm-hmm. The winner that year was Amadeus. Mm-hmm. Amadeus. Amadeus. Oh, Amadeus, oh, Amadeus, Amadeus, Amadeus. Oh, oh, Amadeus. Uh, Best Director: Roland Joffe is nominated. The James L. Brooks wins for Terms of Endearment. Okay, the sad movie. <laughs> Best Adapted Screenplay, Bruce Robinson. Uh, the winner that year was James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment, mm-hmm. the sad movie. Yep. Here's one that I want I wanted to dispute. Because not that he's bad, but Sam Waterston's nominated for Best Lead Actor. Why? I, I don't know about that. That's the thing. Is like He's I mean, solid. He's fine, but it's like... I. I it's like the Juliet Binoche thing. Yeah, exactly. Like, She's perfectly fine. Yeah. As is he. It's just... Why? Why is he even It's there? just like... It, it doesn't... Do we need to give... Do we need to do that yeah <laughs> anyway robert duvall wins that year for a movie called tender mercies which i have no idea what it is yeah we'll have to go back and watch that one but the winners that year yeah wins best cinematography i'll yeah, give well, it that it's good, yeah i mean it's a nice looking movie i would like to see now i don't know if the version you saw of it had been like remastered or anything the version i saw of it looked like a vhs rip because it was on youtube for free folks it's out there if you want to watch it there you go um I think the version I watched was alright. Yeah, it looked pretty good. But I also feel like if this was a British finance movie, that it you know probably didn't have the same kind of like financial swing that a, an American film would have had. I mean, it was a. Uh, and then finally, uh, w- uh, sorry, not finally. We still have two more. Uh, it wins best editing. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And of course, the big one, best supporting actor, Hang S. Nor, which was insane. Again, he yeah. had never nothing like you know. <laughs> never but, been never acted and i've never questioned him being anything but but what here's he the trade to be in the movie that goes back to what i said earlier i think it you're you're really treading that ethical line mm-hmm. by having him in this movie have forcing him to kind of relive his his experience yeah i mean this wasn't i mean to be fair the guy wasn't forced to do anything no but, but no but I, I, for, I when i say force i should say like in the sense of when you're calling action you're yeah he's He's reliving it. And I feel like 30 years ago, they may not have had the same kind of like support staff on, on this movie, uh, which, again, I don't know what the budget of this movie is. Brendan, can you help me out Well, here? the budget for this film was $14.4 million, and that, okay. was in, that was in 1984. So that doesn't seem like even then like a whole... I mean, that's not, a, that's not a, you know, an amount of money to sniff at, but like that's a, um, not a huge amount of money. The box office for this movie was 34.7, so, so it made, made money. over double its money back. That's pretty good. So even if the marketing budget was almost as much as the budget, it still made quite a bit of money. The point is, I don't know that they had a psychologist on set to help uh, Dr. Knorr deal with any sort of issues. Yeah, I don't know how the PTSD at the time, treatment for PTSD was that Called it shell shock in those days. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh wait, sorry. Battle fatigue. I'm just gonna do the whole George Carlin bit. Let's go. Here Post traumatic stress disorder. Here are the seven words you can't say on television, folks. <laughs> Vietnam. So we come to the end. Killing Fields is bottom of the list, number one hundred. Yeah. Um. So I mean, I, I, I I've said a lot about <laughs> what I kind of feel with this movie, but I think I think it's merely okay. It's merely okay, but also watch it because. Like I say, there aren't very many movies that deal with what happened in the Cambodian yeah. regime. And if you consider yourself any sort of student of history or any sort of like citizen of the world, it's probably worth it to watch this. I want to say, too, that Hang S. Nor was only given $800 a week. <laughs> was that even scale at the time? Like, uh, so Always hiring temporary foreign workers to fill the jobs and then paying them shit. <laughs> I think there's some good intentions with this movie, obviously, to get the, you know, to more awareness of the situation in mm-hmm. Cambodia which again at that time there were still problems yeah in 1984 there were oh, still, absolutely. There were still they, problems I mean they there. were still under a communist regime it wasn't democratic Kampuchea yeah uh, but they were still under a communist regime they were still going through a transition period the Khmer Rouge was still out there in the woods still fighting people like they were not dead and I just want to reiterate that uh, I think this movie is more important because uh, like we said because of the what it represents, mm. because of the behind the scenes, because of Hang S. Nor for mm-hmm. sure. Absolutely. Especially him winning the Oscar. Um, rather than the movie itself, I don't think it's very good. But yeah, like Jason said, if you don't know anything about the Cambodian genocide, maybe watch it. If you're not into documentaries, I mean, maybe check it out. Because there's probably plenty of great documentaries mm. out there as well. Um, but uh, uh, Jason, tell me what you think. I know you said you agreed that it's it's like okay. But like, what do you think about this movie overall? Like, do you think it? Do you... I just don't think it's that great, like a movie per se. Like, again, like from the perspective of a movie is supposed to be entertainment. Like, it's I, I can't say that this movie is entertaining, but that's okay because it's not supposed to be entertaining. Really, it's supposed to tell tell this story, and it does it in a way that is you know effective enough. Um, but if I were to remake this movie. Absolutely, Pran is the main character. The Sydney character is probably there in some form as a supporting character. But yeah. yeah, no, we straight up follow him from the moment he gets kicked out of the embassy to the moment that he manages to get to Thailand and get back to the United States. Like, that's how we do it. Mm-hmm. This is how we do it. So, yeah, so see this movie and... Uh, uh, Remember the Cambodian genocide because it was pretty fucking terrible. Ooh. What's that, Jason? This is a dice. It's a dice. It's a dice and people figure out what our next movie is. I believe it's your turn this time. It is because I remember you. we were confused about the 100 roll. Yes, absolutely. Ooh, are you excited? I am excited. So uh, I hope we get something a little lighter this time. What are we doing now, Jason? What are, what are we doing in this segment? This oh, well, <laughs> you, gave this... the, you gave me the cultist stare. <laughs> so go ahead. This segment of the show is it's brought to you by is brought to you by the number seven. Oh man, if I get a seven, they're gonna think we're, we're fooling them. Let's hope. Let's hope. Uh, this this is the segment where we randomly roll because you don't set it up, otherwise it wouldn't be random. Right. Where we will randomly roll a number, and ideally that number will be a number corresponding to a movie on the list that we have not seen. <laughs> Right. And now, we've it, only done like six, seven movies, so we're is, still pretty good. We this, still have a pretty wide range to hit. Yeah, this is episode number eight. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think we're going to hit the same one. I sure hope not. I mean, if we do, we'll just decide to go up or down. All right. Or we'll roll again. I refuse. <laughs> ready. Listen Are you ready? Daddy wants a new pair of shoes. Our number is 
81, Brendan. What's 81? Oh, shit. Uh, it's not going to get any lighter. Oh, no. We're watching A Clockwork Orange. Oh, fuck yes. God, I love that movie. Well, so this is one we've both seen before. Yes. So And I'm excited because I, I, I really like that movie, and I'm always happy to see it again. I saw that movie once in the theater uh, here in, in Fredericton. They did a midnight show, and it was a really old, dirty print, and I was so excited to see it. It was so awesome to see that in the big screen. So, yeah, it's not going to get any lighter. No, nope, not going to get any lighter, but uh, we're going to have a bit of the old in and out next week. So uh, <laughs> you better get ready for a fun podcast. I'm going to beat Brendan to death with a glass cock. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Coming next week. <laughs> oh, So Clockwork Orange. Uh, Starring uh, Star Wars' David Prowse. You're going to say Star Wars' Malcolm McDowell? Yeah, Star Wars' Malcolm McDowell. He played uh, Luke Skywalker. So that is coming up next week but for now god save the queen god save the screen and for screen and country i'm brendan and i'm jason i saluted he literally saluted the microphone folks you can't see that but he still did it that's the committed brendan Find out what it cost. This is not... Hey, Siri. Oh, I'm going to find it right now. What was the budget of the killing fields? Okay, I found this on the what web. Fucking what piece of budget? shit. And, oh. and I'll just reiterate that... Um... Well, you get a good mic, Brennan. <laughs> you wrapped that up there? <laughs> I'm done. Go ahead. Yeah. It's time, let's check our cue, baby. Pair it with a couple brews, baby. We love good movies. We love the bad ones, too. So we watch them all and pass their lessons on to you. Oh, yeah. Everything I learned from movies helps to make life a little bit groovy. With a one last black holes and gratuitous movies. It's time to get busy with your friend Steven Izzy. At eilfm.podbean.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Ashley. And I'm Justine. And, and we, we make, make up the Cutaways Podcast. We're watching the good, the bad, and the essentials of the romantic comedy genre. 
So far, we've fallen in love with Cary Grant, met up with our terrible friend, pal Joey, and had the desire to run our fingers through Patrick Dempsey's hair. Join our slumber party for your ears every other week, brought to you in stereo from our blanket fort in Hollywood, California. You can find and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Our digital blanket fort can be found at thecutaways.com. If you are the social butterfly types, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as at Cutaways Podcast. Bye!